You're listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Norman. Hi, how are you? I'm doing okay. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright, publisher of the Non-Zero Newsletter. This is a Non-Zero Podcast. You are Norman Finkelstein, a political scientist who has uh, just published a book called I'll Burn That Bridge When I Get to It. Good title. Subtitle is Heretical Thoughts on Identity Politics, Cancel Culture, and Academic uh, Freedom. Now, this book uh, is a critique of cancel culture. You're not happy about what you call cancel culture. But one, one distinctive thing about you is that whereas a lot of critics of cancel culture have themselves felt they've been canceled, because they've run afoul of what they might call a woke mob. Uh, you were canceled because you ran afoul of an unwoke mob. Is that uh, one way to put it? So you were uh, teaching at DePaul University. I don't know when exactly this was. You uh, were, you know, the, the department voted to give you tenure. And I think then the review committee above the department level even voted to give you tenure. But then you were ultimately denied tenure for reasons you consider illegitimate. Uh, so before we get into the book, do you want to tell us about what happened there? Uh, I would want to begin by saying I don't discuss it at length in the book. I have a few pages on the outcome of the tenure uh, process. Uh, however, I consider the whole thing very sordid, squalid, personally demeaning, personally humiliating, and also in the great scheme of things, I felt it was trivial. Uh, yes, I paid the price, my, in my opinion, I paid the price for my beliefs, but many people have paid with their lives, paid with long prison terms. So I had to see things in, in perspective. And so I tried to maintain that perspective in the book since large parts of it are devoted to real heroes and heroines of history, whether it be a W.E.B. Du Bois or a Paul Robeson, uh, you know, figures who had extraordinary talents, extraordinary abilities, paid a very big price. And leaving aside figures, you know, who I have great admiration for, like Martin Luther King, who at a very young age, uh, 39 years old, uh, paid with their lives. Uh, strangely enough, it's sometimes hard to believe if Martin Luther King hadn't been assassinated, he'd probably still be alive today. There's a good chance. So, you know, there is a life which was significantly truncated because of his politics. And so I don't uh, pay a lot of attention to it in the book. And I don't make a case for myself personally. What I do do in the book, I do it in an exacting detail. And it's probably the most original chapter of the book was in chapter eight. I go through the main academic freedom cases, uh, beginning with beginning with uh, uh, Bertrand Russell, uh, but then going through Angela Davis and a whole a large number of others. And I discuss the question, uh, what are the legitimate grounds? What are the legitimate grounds for denying a professor the right to teach? And actually, it's not an easy question. If you take the case of Bertrand Russell, Okay, Russell was a world-class uh, philosopher, world-class mathematician, world-class logician, and City University of New York 
hires him uh, to teach in these natural science and natural philosophy uh, and philosophy fields. But it happens that Bertrand Russell had very unorthodox uh, ideas on morality. Now, this is what, in the, in the 1940s or so? In 1940, he was uh -huh. in the United States during World War II. So he was advocating at his time, at his time, he was advocating the equivalent nowadays if you were to advocate pedophilia. At his time, it was the equivalent. He was advocating premarital sex. He was advocating the right to engage in homosexual relations, things which were considered way out of line, mm. way off the beam. Well, the Catholic Church organizes, most of the Catholic Church organizes this huge campaign to deny him the right to tenure, or to deny him the right to teach. He wasn't a tenure position, just deny him the right to teach. And Bertrand Russell's position was that what I say in public, however much it may offend uh, the public, um, I should have the right to say it so long as when I'm teaching, I stick narrowly to my fields and don't stray into uh, my moral beliefs. That, of course, begged the question, um, what if he taught his beliefs? Because he, he did write a book called Marriage and Morale. Uh, Marriage and, and Morals. Marriage and Morals, uh, which was a very sophisticated piece of scholarship. Let's say he wanted to teach that. Should he have been? Should he have had the right to teach? And so I go through these complex. I think it's not natural science, but complicated questions. Uh, and then I raise a question uh, which was very pertinent to my own case, though in a much humbler level. Take the case of Karl Marx, okay? Take his, what he considered his magnum opus, Das Kapital, Marx's Capital. If you go through the book, I've read it several times, if you go through it, he's very vicious when it comes to what he calls bourgeois uh, economists. He calls this one a cretin, that one an idiot, this one a moron. He uses, if we can say, the most juvenile epithets in his uh, castigation of the various most eminent bourgeois economists of his time, right? Now, you've been in academia. You've been a professor, I understand. You were at Princeton for a couple of years. I'm, I'm not credentialed, but I've taught at the, I, I've taught at the, uh, yeah, the, the, that level. Right. So, you know, there's this standard in academia. It's called civility. <laughs> you have to be civil to your colleagues, okay? At least mm -hmm. formally. Uh, behind a fake smile, of course, there's a lot more going on, but you at least have to be civil. Well, I'm not civil. I acknowledge that. Karl Marx was not civil. Mm -hmm. Now, even Joseph Schumpeter, who was one of the great economists of the 20th century, he ranked, he said Marx is a first-rank economist. He happened to be a first-rank economist who was uncivil to his colleagues. Should he have been denied tenure? Now, that to me is a reductio ad absurdum. If Karl Marx can't teach economics, then there's something fundamentally wrong with the protocols of academia. It just doesn't make sense. So I look at that case. I was charged with being uncivil. Of course, I never wrote the equivalent of a Marxist capital. I didn't write the equivalent of one chapter of Marxist capital in my whole life. Um, 
So it's on a much more humble scale, but it raised the same issues. The poll said it was going to deny me tenure because I was uncivil. I, I didn't respect, I didn't show due deference uh, to my colleagues. And uh, so rather than plead my own case, which as I said, for reasons I've already gone into, I didn't want to discuss, I looked at the other cases and I asked, uh, are these reasonable standards? Angela Davis, who you may recall, she came under a lot of attack because she was not civil to Arthur Jensen. I don't know how old you are, but Arthur mm -hmm. Jensen was a figure in the 1960s. He published the famous article in Harvard, Harvard Educational Review, and he said black people are genetically inferior to white people in intelligence. Okay? Well, here's Angela Davis. She studied at the Sorbonne. She studied on the, under Adorno in the Free University in West Germany. Believe it or not, Angela Davis was teaching Kant at age 22 at UCLA. No small achievement. I've tried Kant's critique of yeah, theory. Yeah, good luck with that. Yeah. But yeah, just trying to get through it. She was teaching it, and I'm told by people who knew her with a very high level of confidence. Now, is this woman obliged to respect the scholarship of Arthur Jensen, who's basically saying black people have the IQ on average of a baboon? Is she obliged to respect to be civil to him or, as she did, call him a racist and said he has no right to academic freedom? So I, I as I said, what I decided to do, leave me aside. I'll just look at these cases and then let the reader decide what are the reasonable, fair standards for deciding a professor's competence to teach. Competence okay, to teach. But in your case, you don't think civility was the real issue, right? I mean, it's true that you would, I'm sure, concede that you have an edgy way of speaking. If you read uh, this this new book of yours, it's clear that you are capable of harshly characterizing uh, people whose ideas you have little respect for. but. You know, I, I do think we should we should tell tell the story, give people a little bit of the the background. I mean, let me tell you my understanding of it. Okay, so and I'm actually a little confused about even if we assume that the civility thing uh, was not the real issue, the question of what the underlying issue was is not totally clear to me. So uh, you had you had done you had two kind of bodies of work. You had I think already published this book, The Holocaust Industry in which you argued, and we should say both of your parents are Holocaust survivors. I think some of their immediate relatives were actually killed in the Holocaust, uh, but... but not, uh, Just for clarity's sake, not some. Every single member of my family on my mother and father's side was exterminated during the war. I had no aunts, I had no uncles, I had no cousins, I had no grandparents. Uh, we were, as my late mother used to say, we are five people in the world. My mother, my father, my two siblings, and myself. Okay. And I, I, I gather the thesis of the Holocaust industry was that uh, the issue was sometimes exploited uh, for reasons you considered illegitimate uh, by, by some Jews to some ends, to some political ends or, or, or whatever. And, and, uh, and, and this is an idea that, um, you know, you were talking about Bertrand Russell's ideas seeming less scandalous now 
I, I think you would say this idea seems at least somewhat less scandalous. Now, it's been adopted by other people. You know, I know uh, Avram Berg, uh, who was the speaker of the Knesset in Israel. I don't know if he had said this before your book or what, but but he has said much the same thing. Yeah, he referred to the show industry. I right. mean, it was considered a scandal just the title of my book. Well, now the speaker of the Israeli Knesset, he was writing in his book about the, the Shoah industry. Mm -hmm. uh, so yes, you're absolutely correct. My ideas have passed into main, you know, a large part of mainstream discourse. Even my views in the Israel-Palestine conflict, by the latter days, I was being referred to as a liberal Zionist. Yeah. yeah where I, I caught, um, you know, my share of grief because of my opinions, even those have passed into mainstream at this point. Okay, and that leads to the other thing that uh, lurks beneath the surface in this tenure decision, which I guess is what more immediately maybe led to your dispute with Alan Dershowitz, which played a role in this decision. And that is the, the dissertation, I guess the work you did is a, when you were getting your PhD at Princeton, you, uh, you critiqued a book that, as I understand it, had kind of acted as if there wasn't much in the way of an indigenous Palestinian population in Palestine when uh, Zionists, uh, the Zionist movement started increasing the number of Jews who lived there. So there was, in no sense, an intrusion, according to this book that you were critiquing, right? And that was your PhD dissertation, is that right? And then Oh, well, okay, you're shaking your head, so go ahead and tell the real story. Oh, basically, basically, you're right. Just the tiny details, but we should try to get the tiny details right. Uh, at the uh, By the time I had finished my research for my doctoral dissertation, uh, I had start, uh, a book came out, it was called From Time Immemorial. It was written by this person named Joan Peters. Allegedly, it was written by her. And she made the claim that Palestine was empty on the eve of Zionist colonization. The... Uh, Jews came to Palestine, made the desert bloom, and then all these Arabs from neighboring countries surreptitiously entered Palestine. And so they weren't really Palestinians, they were just Arab uh, uh, Arabs surreptitiously entering the area. It wasn't so uh, much important, the book was, it wasn't so much important as a book in itself. It was the kind of endorsements it got. It became a national bestseller, instant national bestseller. It was got these glowing endorsements from Barbara Tuckman, uh, Saul Bellow, Elie Wiesel. Uh, uh, it was a kind of the who's who of uh, the Jewish intellectual class, uh, lauded the New Republic, uh, Martin Peretz. Uh, he said I, I know him no, well. I know him well. He said there was no, there wasn't a single factual error in the book, um, which was technically true because there wasn't a single fact in the book. It was all just science fiction, and. Uh, I had been, if you want the background story, I had been a Maoist in my youth, and my um, belief system collapsed when uh, Mao Zedong passed away, and then the whole system was overturned. And so I was very cautious about uh, believing or not believing anything. I really have to examine the facts. And when the Joan Peters book came along, even though I had done a lot of scholarly research already, I thought maybe it's true. Maybe I've been fooled again. I've made another mistake. And you know the expression, once bitten, twice shy, I wasn't going to take a chance uh, of making a fool of myself again. And so I sat down and I methodically, for just one second. Um, this happens to be the original edition. 
I, I sat down and I went through the book. As you can see, I went through every page, every footnote, 1,853 footnotes, went through them, and there was a, uh, a, a demographic study that was the core of the book. And the demographic study was endorsed by the leading population specialist at the University of Chicago. And the endorsement is in a letter at the end of the book, and that's very daunting. You know, I'm a graduate student, University of Chicago. Demographics is a very esoteric subject. He says her findings are correct. So I took a deep breath and plunged into the book, plunged into the math, sat down on my bed every night when I came home from work with a notepad and, a piece, and my pen, and did the calculations, did the calculations, did the calculations, did the calculations, and then at some moment they had that eureka moment, I discovered the fraud. Um, and that kind of made my uh, name at a quite early Did age. You see, it was it was a, it was an actual fraud in the sense of just like making up numbers or, or and yes, so the, the numbers were faked, and uh, the look, it's a large book, and uh, in order to prove a thesis of that kind, you're going to have a lot of trouble finding evidence. <laughs> there was nobody there. So there had to be an awful lot of forgery to fill 400 pages with a completely lunatic thesis. So yes, it was fake. And I go through it, you know, and uh, it, it was resolved in my favor. I mean, at some point, uh, it took a long time, but Anthony Lewis wrote a famous column in the New York Times called, mm -hmm. was there were no Indians, which was <laughs> being obviously um, ironic and conceding that the book was a fake. It was a full-fledged wholesale hoax. Um, and that made me a lot of enemies mm -hmm. because it was an egg in the face on all of these so-called experts and all of these so-called intellectuals that here comes along this no nothing, this nondescript graduate student. He just sat down, read the book, and showed the whole thing was nonsense. Uh, so you could say that was the beginning of my troubles. Uh, and then Alan Dershowitz in particular took issue with that analysis and and weighed in heavily in the tenure uh, no, issue. Is that what happened was the silliest coincidence. Alan Dershowitz wrote a book, The Case for Israel, in which he plagiarized large sections of John Peters. That's <laughs> just. It's just ridiculous. It's like nonsense piled on top of nonsense. He not only plagiarized, he plagiarized a hoax. <laughs> so I, I confronted him on it, and he was not pleased. I confronted him on this program, called, public affairs program called Democracy Now. Mm -hmm. He was obviously very upset because... First of all, he was shocked, and I'm serious. I'm serious. He was shocked. I read his book. I mean, most of these people are accustomed that when they appear in interview shows, they just ask the questions which they are, which were handed to the interviewer. And he was shocked that I had read the book, and I started to go through it line by line. And I began with Professor Dershowitz. You have a real problem here. There are large sections of your book. They're not just plagiarized, but they're plagiarized from a hoax. So there's a double problem here. And I remember at the end of the program, Amy Goodman, who was the moderator, I had left early, 
earlier than him. And she talked to me afterwards. And she said to me, her last words to me that day were, she said, Norman, be careful. You're like red meat to him now. And he went on what Professor Chomsky called, he went on a jihad to try to stop me, to discredit me. And he and was it, a professor at Harvard Law School, Dan, as he still is? But he's not, yes, he's not any longer. He was a okay. senior professor okay. at Law School, Felix mm -hmm. Frankfurter a professor of constitutional law. Okay. And um, but he was retired. He claims he retired, I think, probably, in my opinion, but no proof. He was retired after the Epstein st uh, case started mm -hmm. percolate. Um, but he weighed in in my tenure case in a very big way. And also, if we want to speak faithfully to the facts, DePaul was a Catholic university. And I was being accused of being a Holocaust denier and also Which being isn't even remotely true, right? I mean, I mean you, you, there's a simple way to test that question, in my opinion. The question yeah. is, given my family history, if I were a Holocaust denier, I'd have to be certifiably insane. I would have to be certifiably insane. Yeah. My father was in Auschwitz, the Auschwitz death march. My mother was in Majdanek in two slave labor camps. Both of them were in the Warsaw Ghetto. Every single member of my family on both sides, apart from my mother and father, were exterminated. If, in light of that family history, I were a Holocaust denier, I would have to be certifiably insane. I'd have to be clinically insane. So then you're the one to judge. You're listening to me, you're talking to me, your viewers are listening to me. Do I appear to be clinically insane? Is, is, is this the persona? of a person who's clinically insane. But that's what was being said. And DePaul is a Catholic university. And having me on its faculty, speaking honestly, I'm a huge millstone around their neck because of my public reputation. I'm an albatross for them. And so given my public reputation, Professor Dershowitz or no Professor Dershowitz, they wanted to get rid of me. And they used the claim of civility. Uh, but as I said, I don't think that's a reasonable standard. And I don't think that was the real reason. Okay. So as you say, um, you you most of your book is not about this. You do retell this story there in greater detail. And it's interesting. So I want to move on to the rest of the book. But first, I want to say that one thing I admire you for is that the, at the very end of the book, you say, since this happened in, I think, 2007, you've had trouble getting uh, gainful employment. Um, you are you are now teaching at uh, is it is it uh, City University or City College as an adjunct right now the, in New York? Different uh, branches of the City University yeah. of New York, Brooklyn College, Hunter College. Yeah, uh, they have enabled me to do some adjunct, occasional adjunct yeah. teaching. But but still, you know, this was a pretty devastating career-wise. And you say at the end of the book, "Am I uh, am I bitter? Yes. <laughs> am I am I defeated? No. I admire you for saying you're bitter because there are so many people bitter about so many things, including me, and they usually deny it. And and the fact is, bitterness happens, uh, and you 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 just try to uh, cope with it. So if you want to say anything else about that before we move on to the the other parts of the book, feel free. 
I just right. wanted to say what I say in the book. I have no regrets. And the reason I don't have regrets is contrary to widespread opinion. I'm actually not impulsive and I'm not um, I'm not very spontaneous. At each juncture in my life's journey, I, I was very careful and reflected about whether I should do A or whether I should do B. And I understood the consequences of doing B. I was not blind to those consequences. I understood them. And I made that decision to do B. So I can't really claim, I can't re legitimately claim regrets because those decisions were uh, thought out. They were uh, carefully reflected on. And those are the decisions I wanted to make. So I don't have, in that respect, I have no regrets about my decisions. But yes, uh, from 2007 until two years ago, not only was I not able to teach, I was not able to do anything because my name had been so blackened. Nobody, I even tried to volunteer teach in a high school uh, in East Harlem. The principal would not have me because mm. they were, you know, fearful a student is going to Google your name and it's going to come up Holocaust denier. And then, oh my, the parents. Can, can, just quickly, was were you, uh, where did the denier part? even come from? I mean, uh, where did it come from? Well, uh, it came from using and flinging an epithet, which would be designed, which was designed to discredit me. So it wasn't like there, there was no <laughs> numerical. I mean, you weren't even saying it wasn't an argument about 5.5 .5 million versus 6.5 million or something well, like that. Uh, with the editor of the progressive magazine, Matthew Rothschild, yes, that became an issue because I was quoting the figure of the leading uh, expert in the subject, which is what they usually do. In this case, it was Raoul Hilberg, uh, the author of The Destruction of European Jewry. He's usually considered the founder of the field of Holocaust studies, and he was by far in the way. There was no comparison between him and number two in his range and depth of knowledge. He was terrifying in his uh, uh, consumption of the raw material of the Nazi Holocaust. And he used the figure 5.2, 5.1 million. So I just quoted him, that's the figure he uses. Uh, I don't think that was the reason though. I think it was just the flinging of a, an epithet which would just totally discredit me. Yeah. And uh, it was a conversation stopper. Uh, I would just note as an interesting fact that Hilberg, even though he was a right-wing Republican, he was very conservative. Uh, uh, he swore by the Wall Street Journal. Uh, uh, Hilbert turned out to be my biggest defender. Uh, mm -hmm. and he said, I told the truth and I was paying a price. He said, it was obvious I was paying a price. But he said that my, my place in history for writing history is secure. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I do my homework. I'm not a great mind, but you know what Edison said, genius is 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration. I perspired. I perspired. <laughs> I didn't get that 1%, but there was a lot of perspiration. Um, okay, so uh, as I said, although you, you come from the left, 
uh, one of your big formative influences was Noam Chomsky, whom you came to know well. Uh, you, you, in the book, uh, criticize a certain amount of pressure that is seen as coming from the left, uh, you know, sometimes you under the label woke or whatever, uh, to, in your view, uh, suppress speech. Do you want to you want to talk about what what some of your uh, your main complaints are? Well, I, in the book, I decided to do what I think I'm most effective at, which is I'm pretty good what people label me a forensic scholar, which is I go through the logic of an argument, I go through the evidence on the argument, and I try to see whether the argument, if there is an argument, if it holds. And a lot of what is called, you know, identity politics, whether it be Kimberly Crenshaw with that that buzzword she coined, intersectionality, or Tanahisi Coates, whose trademark is black reparations, or Ibram X. Kendi, whose trademark has now become how to be an anti-racist. I go through their main works and I see, is there an argument here? First of all, there's the basic question, is there an argument here? And then the second question is, does the argument cohere? And third of all, does the evidence support the argument? And each of the cases I analyzed, uh, my conclusion was no argument here, no evidence to support the argument, no logic here. This is just nonsense. It's in the most crude sense. It's nonsense uh, uh, being passing off as woke scholarship and having a pretty wide audience, people like Ibram X. Kendi, uh, stem from the beginning or how to be an anti-racist. It has a it has a considerable currency now in our culture, or at least the liberal uh, mm -hmm. end of our culture. Uh, and then beyond that, I discussed the issue of uh, what's permit uh, whether whether the uh, range of permissible speech has been significantly narrowed by these co concepts. No, not concepts, buzzwords like safe spaces. Uh, uh, what is it when you give the alert? Beginning of Triggering, class, trigger, trigger warning. Trigger warnings. Um, actually, in my last class, in the first day of class, I said, I'm giving one trigger warning for the next 14 weeks. <laughs> that way I don't have to. There's a lot of things I'm going to say you're going to find out, right? And, and what did you say? I, I may say things that offend you. That's the trigger warning? Yes, for 14 weeks. <laughs> if you don't like it, too bad. Goodbye. Um, I well, it's that, good that you weren't canceled for that, right? That's a good sign. It's true. Uh, a lot of the kids like the City University, this trigger warning and safe spaces is just so... Uh, so beside the point that right. these, these um, are so a lot of them are working class kids. I take it. I mean, they're certainly you know not. Uh, they're, they're both working class, and a lot of them because it's City University, their first generation college. Their uh -huh. parents uh -huh. are, are immigrants, uh -huh. uh, so they have much bigger fish to fry, so to speak, than their pronouns. Um, so, um, but if you're in a comp lit class you know, in uh, graduate school nowadays. And I've had, I've had students and I've had friends who've gone through that. It's, it's a horror show. You know, it used to be when you, I don't know how far you went in your, in your formal schooling, but it used to be the first day of seminar, each seminar, you go around the room and each student would talk about what their intellectual interests are. A little bit presumptuous, a little bit 
hoity toity, but you're supposed to talk about what your intellectual interests are. Um, nowadays, you go around the room, the first thing is you're supposed to name your pronouns. Uh, and if you don't want to name your pronoun, it becomes a source of, you know, class contention. You mean if a student says, I don't want to talk about that, they yes, come under pressure? Yes, and I've, I've heard stories. And, and I had a friend who, believe me, this is not just bicoastal stuff. I had a friend who studied in <clears throat> Louisville. He went to study English literature. And it was a class almost all, all of women except for him. And all they wanted to talk about was their sexual identities. Whatever person you're, whatever the subject matter is, whatever the subject matter is, he dropped out after a year. I said, no, no, stick it out for two years, keep a diary, it would make a great book. Uh, said, nope. No, Knoxville. It wasn't, it wasn't Louisville. It was Knoxville, Tennessee. He said, I can't do it. I can't do it. And um, in those ways, it's had a really, I think, a pernicious and very dispiriting effect in academia. As people go in, they do want to learn. They do want to learn. There's a, a terrific underestimation of city college working class kids. I I, um, I teach those kids, young now, people. Now you do you do the pronoun thing at the beginning of your own classes in city? Just absolutely not. You don't do it. No, absolutely not. And you I'm haven't sure. you haven't gotten into trouble for not doing it. No, but I I I have made a point of saying this is a classroom. It's not a dating app. And I am not interested in your pronouns. That's just not, it's your personal business. It's not my business. This is a classroom. I'm here to teach. I have subject matter. And I'm interested in how your brain thinks. I'm but, not you, but as a practical matter, you, you will wind up using pronouns to refer to them, right? And I like, I mean, you may say, well, he, but you may look at one student and say, but he just made the point. So. I will, Listen, I'm going to be honest with you. You make your, you do your darndest to just keep using the first name. Ah. Sometimes there may be a slip, but I am not, I'm, I'm going to be perfectly frank with you. And I know it can get me in trouble even on your program. I'm serious about that. And I, I do worry about it because I love to teach. I will not refer to a student as a they. I, I will not do it because I find it it denatures the English language. It turns me into an object of ridicule. You say I'm showing respect for the student, maybe, but I think it also turns me into an object of ridicule. Look, Norman's now saying they, and then it becomes a distraction in the class. Because the person is not a they. I have a little credo. You show me two assholes and I'll call you a they. But until then. I, I wouldn't I, recommend saying <laughs> that in class. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I consider it as, as a matter of personal dignity, my personal dignity, that I am not going to say something which is manifestly untrue. The person is not a they. And the moment you concede ground 
on that point, out of so-called respect for the student, then your whole credibility, in my opinion, your whole credibility as a professor is diminished. It's like this guy is going along with a Fed, that he is compromising his integrity as a professor. That person is not a they. Okay, but what about uh, two questions, I guess. One is, there are uh, colleges, city is not one of them, but uh, where your credibility among students might be enhanced. I could probably show you a seminar at some college where mm. you're going to lose the respect and attention of the students if you don't say they. Uh, but more substantively, just what about the argument that, like, look, language is just a convention. Uh, and if they comes to refer to a, a student who was uh, born with one kind of genitalia but found themselves not identifying with the expectations associated with that classification, and it became, uh, and you know, look, I, I'm honestly agnostic. I don't know. It was easy for me. I just felt like a guy, but I can certainly, I know there's all kinds of people in the world who have different experiences and different things. And and so I, I, I'm, I'm certainly willing to, uh, to concede that, that this could be a very deep and emotional thing for some, somebody. They can struggle with it. They don't feel that the identity that people are assigning them is the one that they're comfortable with and so on. For whatever reason, they say, I'm a they. And, uh, you know, it, uh, it doesn't seem... Yeah, go, okay, go ahead. You can say whatever you want, but you're not going to get me to say it. You can be, you can have muscular dystrophy and say you can run the four minute mile. Fine. I'm not going to, dis, I'm not going to, you want to say that? Fine. Daniel DeVito could say he's the tallest guy in the class. If he wants to say that, that's fine. But you're not going to get me to say yeah, it. Yeah, but I mean, this is a I, little different from that. No, and I don't really believe it's different. I think when we used to fill out forms, we would have a certain section of a form which had standard, what you call, you might call, rel relatively stable identifying questions. Eye color, mm -hmm. hair color, height, weight, date of birth. Those were what you call relatively stable identifiers, okay? And there was one called sex. Now you can't find sex anymore. Everyone's politically correct. Even the Supreme Court, if you read their decisions, now it's just gender, okay? Mm -hmm. You had one called sex. And you have two boxes, M, F. That's it, just like eye color. You have brown, green, hazel, whatever they had at that, that time, okay? And a pronoun, there are two pronouns and there are two sexes, and the pronouns just refer to the sexes, relatively stable identifiers. That's all it is. I'm not insulting anyone. If I'm calling you a he, it's not like I'm calling you the N-word or I'm calling you a cunt or something. It's just a relatively stable identifier. If I say you have white hair, which is what I have now, the few that remain are white, I'm not insulting anyone. That's just your hair color. And so the pronouns merely refer to your sexes. And what you want to do with your sex is for your, it's your business. Go, go ahead. I don't care how you dress. I don't care how you walk. I don't care about anything. And I don't see why it's an issue. I don't even see why anyone is even talking about it. It makes sense. Like, 
as if you're insulting someone. I am not insulting someone. If I, if I say, I don't think if you have muscular dystrophy, you can run the four-minute mile. I don't think that's an insult. And I don't think if I say Danny DeVito, he should be in the gym line. We used to line up in gym class by size, you know, and also in class because of being able to see the blackboard. Short people in the front, tall people in the back. It's not insulting to say if you're short in the front, even if you want to believe you're tall. It's yeah. it's yeah, I mean, I'm not sure this. these are factual questions in the same sense. I mean, the question of what kind of genitalia you have is a factual question. Yes, and um, the, 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 the pronouns just refer to what's called your, your reproductive yeah. system. If you're a he, you have a male reproductive system. If you're a she, you have a female reproductive yeah. system. End of story, not casting any aspersions on anyone's character, not casting any aspersions on anybody's self-identity. You could I, be whatever you want. Okay. But you're not, not going to get me in class uh, to do those things because I feel that all my credibility as a professor has been diminished. Next, he'll be saying, well, if he's calling that fellow they, next he'll be saying the earth is flat. And actually, I think they fall in the same category. I do think talking about pregnant people falls into the same category as climate denial, all the craziness you attribute to the Trump base, mm -hmm. all their crazy ideas like climate uh, change denial and things like that. Well, I think talking about people who menstruate is crazy. You know well, what? You, you I, mean saying that instead of saying a female or a woman? Yes. Is men, are, men don't menstruate. End of story. Please don't start with me. You know, I was a very popular child as a kid. I got invited to a lot of bar mitzvahs. Now it's true as I got older and I got more politically radical, I was less popular. But I, none of my friends invite, none of my male friends invite me to their baby showers. And there was a reason for that, because they didn't have a baby. Maybe I was less popular, but it's also because they didn't have a baby uh, and they didn't have baby showers because people don't have babies. Women have babies. Please stop it. You're just torturing me. When you're, you're forcing me, coercing me, browbeating me into saying things which are as ridiculous as climate change denial or the earth is flat. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd be willing to have a, a longer <laughs> argument about whether the 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 uh, whether this is a factual question in exactly the same sense. In other words, I think there are societies on the anthropological record that maybe. You know, they have these andro androgynous uh, characters who play some kind of shamanistic role or something. I'd be interested in looking into whether how they handle it linguistically. But, but I'm, I'm not. I'm just. I'm just. Uh, I'm, all for, I'm all for androgyny. I'm all yeah. for uh, drag, cross dress, whatever you want. Yeah. Do, do whatever you want. But that doesn't change your hair color, eye color, date of birth, or your sex. No, it doesn't change your genitalia unless you do it surgically. I agree. The um. I, I, one thing I do like about the, the, the they convention is just a, as a matter of grammatical convenience, you know, there was this thing where when you're referring to somebody and you don't know their gender, it used to be the convention that you would say he and then uh, feminists uh, understandably complain. And so you started saying he and she and that's just a pain. They is shorter. It's like one I word. I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. And that brings another point. Language has, if you care about language, it has many facets. One is the definition of a word. 
And definitions of a word are not sufficient in order to judge the appropriateness of a word. It may be correct in your thesaurus, and it may be correct in your dictionary, but it may not work in the sentence. So you have to have a set. Context is important for language. A second thing that's important for language is melody. How it sounds. It's, um, it's uh, rhythm is important. You read the sentence, does the word work with the rhythm, the sound of the sentence? A third thing in a sentence is calligraphy. It's not the equivalent of Chinese calligraphy, but how a word looks on the page, it makes a difference. If you start having all of these slashes, it just looks ugly. What do you want me to tell you? It looks ugly. So I never liked the he, she. And I do use the convention now. Uh, if, a, a they to refer uh, to an unidentified yeah, singular yeah. pronoun, right? Yes. Yes. I, I do use that convention. Good. That to me is a question of language, of which one aspect is mm -hmm. how it appears. It's visual, how it appears on the page. You know that when you start using too many slashes, yeah. it looks ugly. The problem with the wokeness is they don't allow for the gradual organic evolution of language of course it occurs i have no doubt about it they take up their crowbar they take up their chisel and they push these pronouns or these slashes into sentences which is just like taking a wrecking ball it's a wrecking ball to language, it's so ugly, mm -hmm. it's so repellent to the eye, to the ear, it's so ugly and repellent. And I have a real problem with that. I have a real problem when people who've never read a novel, literally never read a novel, are dictating the, uh, the, the, the norms of language. I think that's a very big problem. But I recognize language evolves, and I recognize that a lot of what uh, may seem uh, out of bounds makes language more colorful. I have no problem with that, and it makes it more lively. And there have been wonderful additions to our language, whether they are Yiddish additions or African-American additions, which have done wonderful things for our language, but it wasn't done with a gun to your head. It was done through the normal organic process of how language evolves. Yeah, I would think sometimes language evolves under pressure kind of, but I take your point that this is pretty abrupt. And, and, I, and I agree, look, as, an, as, a, as, a, as a kind of old person, I, I do wish people would just cut me more slack in terms of my sheer ability to completely reorient the way I conceive of certain things. You know, it's like, uh, it's like, can I get it some kind of uh, old age exemption or something? Um, but but um, let me let me uh, ask, let, let's move to something else quickly. There's a couple of things I want to touch on because I know you've got to go in 15 minutes. Um, the uh, uh, So you mentioned uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates' argument for reparations. You also mentioned Ibram uh, Kendi's uh, stuff. And I don't know if you mentioned it, but your book does get into Robin D'Angelo, who's 
kind of, uh, I, I guess, among other things, uh, wrote kind of something that's used in some corporations as a Bible to how to handle diversity issues. It, it seems to me, uh, I had thought of, you know, Robin D'Angelo and Ibram Kendi as more involved in speech policing per se than Ta-Nehisi Coates, right? He's making an argument that you can you can take issue with on reparations, but I hadn't thought of him as somebody who's trying to enforce an orthodoxy about uh, speech in quite the way uh, the other two are. Does that make sense? Sure. <clears throat> Ta-Nehisi Coates represents another aspect of council culture, and that is the creation or fabrication, maybe fabrication is too strong a word, the turning of certain political issues into litmus tests. And the Ta-Nehisi Coates litmus test became black reparations. Do you or don't you support reparations for black people for the period of slavery? And also, if you read Coates's article for after slavery, the various forms of, for example, he goes into some length in housing segregation in Chicago, and the fact that black people weren't eligible for uh, certain of the New Deal programs by reason of race. Um, and this became a, lit a litmus test on the woke left. And I had two problems, or I have two problems with it. Number one, the political problem. It was used as a device to derail the Bernie Sanders class struggle, you can call it, class struggle platform. Because Bernie had a goal. You can agree with it or disagree with it, but it was a clear-cut goal. He wanted to unite what was called in the Occupy movement era, the 99%. Well, it's not really 99%, it's probably about 80%. Namely, those who are losers in the current system. And he wanted to create a coalition of those who are, who are uh, losing in the current system uh, in order to inaugurate a uh, kind of a New Deal type project. And Bernie knew that in order to make this coalition hold true, you have to downplay the identity politics and play up the common denominator. White people, black people, the 80%, they're losing. The identity politics, in this case, the black reparations, Bernie knew. If I come out strong for black reparations, I'm going to lose some of the white working class. Uh, that was just a fact of life because a lot of white workers are thinking, hey, what did I have to do with slavery? And haven't we given them enough? And this and, and that. And that the broad coalition of the 80% was going to begin to fragment. And then along came Ta-Nehisi Coates, and he started to say Bernie has a problem with race. Bernie has a problem with race because he won't come out robustly for black reparations. So as a political reality, the black reparations was being used as a weapon to derail the Bernie campaign. In addition, Black reparations, it's very big in Atlantic Magazine, where I understand you are a contributor. 
Oh, Just, oh uh, not not anymore. But I, I, I at one point had uh, had had kind of a, I, I've written for it. I at one point had kind of a blog. But but yeah, they, they kind of launched the reparations yeah, yeah. thing. Jeff, Jeffrey Goldberg. Loves well, he wasn't it. the editor then. I know, I know, but James Bennett was. Yeah. Yes, but when Goldberg came along, he turned Tanahisi Coates into the national a national correspondent for Atlantic Magazine. He loved, you know, they used to have these love fests where Jeffrey Goldberg would refer to Tanahisi Coates. He called him T. You know, he's real hip, down with the hood. He's T. Um, and it was very popular on Martha's Vineyard. But you know, and I know, it didn't have a snowball's chance in hell of passing through Congress. In fact, most black people didn't give it. I mean, in theory, give me a million dollars. Sure, I'm not going to say no. But it's not going to be my main issue. The main issue is jobs, health care, the Bernie Sanders platform. And so these kinds of slogans had no practical political application. They were just a form of branding. Look at me. Look how, how cool I am. Look how radical I am. And you could be cool and you could be radical, like most people, I suppose, on Martha's Vineyard are. And it doesn't cost you anything. What does it cost you? And Tanahisi Coates became, you know, like Angela Davis, unfortunately. He became one of the, you know, uh, Angela Davis was once one of the 10 most wanted, no, no, FBI's 10 most wanted list. And now she's on Martha's Vineyard, five most coveted list. Uh, these are, you know, because she speaks about another completely irrelevant issue. She talks about prison abolitionism. Well, is prison abolitionism on, an, on our agenda now? Assuming the human race survives for the next 10 or 20 years, which is a big assumption, will it be on the agenda in the next 10 or 20 years? What does it have to do with anything, abolition of prisons? You know, Marx, I'm a Marxist. I remain whatever it means anymore, but okay, I remain. I, I still think Marx's ideas are worth serious consideration. So Marx talks about the abolition of money. You know, in communist society, we're going to abolish money, right? So right now we're facing a major uh, economic impasse for the 80%, right? The system is not working for them. They're actually regressing. Even now they talk about full employment. They say, um, we have uh, 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 employment is now, unemployment now is down to like 4%. And they say, uh, real wages, real wages, they say, are up. No, they say wages are up 4.4%, and they say inflation is up 6 point something percent. Well, guess what? If real wages are up 4% and inflation is up 6%, you're doing worse, which actually should be the headline. It's not wages are going up. No, real wages are going down. So uh, in the midst of all of this economic, no, real a real challenge. Even I, I used to eat eggs every day. Now I'm down to uh, eggs every other day. I used to eat two eggs a day. Now I'm down to one egg a day, you know, because eggs two years ago were two dozen in my Chinese market were two dozen for three dollars. Now it's one dozen for five and a half dollars. So that's what uh, most people are concerned about. So let's say as a Marxist, I say, I have the answer. I have the answer to this crisis. What's your answer? Abolish money. It's right there in Marx. All we have to do is abolish money. You know, 
People would think, yeah, this guy is certifiably insane. What does abolish money have to do with the current economic crisis? In the same way, yes, there's a huge problem. And I am the last one on God's earth, the last one on God's earth, who's going to deny that we have a huge problem with the incarceration of young black people. That is a huge problem. I've been in prison only for one night. And believe me, one night was quite enough. You know, several times I ended up for one night protests of this sort, that sort. One night was quite enough. Sleeping on a bed without a mattress is, uh, uh, is not a pleasant thing, you know? So my heart goes out to these young people. No, one, no one's heart goes out. Well, maybe a mother of a child, her heart goes out more. But I understand this idea that there are more black people in prison now than there were slaves before the Civil War it is a real problem. So I'm the last one to contest the uh, the horror, not even gravity, the horror of the situation. I'm the last one to contest it. But what does prison abolition ha have to do with it? Are we about to abolish prisons? Does that have anything? That's why they love her. The same reason they love, that's why they love her and Martha's Vineyard. And that's why they love Ta-Nehisi Coates and Martha's Vineyard. Because it has nothing to do with the real world. It's complete nonsense. Yeah. And no, but nobody on Martha's Vineyard actually wants to abolish all prisons or actually yeah. wants to defund the police. Let me, I, if right, you, they'll, be all, they'll be all for abolishing it so long as none of them can come to Martha's Vineyard. Yeah, the, um, uh, right. Uh, the one place where prisons will still be allowed is on Martha's Vineyard. Uh, <laughs> the, the, um, so, uh, but I know you got to go soon. I wanted to ask you, you know, uh, the whole Twitter thing has been in the news in the context of uh, free speech, which is central uh, uh, to your book, The Free Speech Issue. Uh, one of the people who has come to be associated in the public mind with the kind of def defense of untrammeled speech on Twitter is Barry Weiss, because she was chosen by Elon Musk to be uh, one of the journalists who went through and combed uh, the, the the practices of the past regime to look for instances of cancellation and so on. Early in the book, you talk about Barry Weiss and raise questions as to uh, what, how consistent she's been in her defense of speech. And, and, uh, and, and that's related to some of the issues that got you in trouble early on. So what's your what's your argument there? Uh, I'm going to be short in this question. Uh, first of all, I've never been on Twitter. I don't even know what Twitter is. You know, people send me what they call this thing called tweets. Uh, it makes me cringe. I'm never going to say a person's quote unquote tweet. It's it just it feels like it lowers the, the intellectual quality of something I'm writing. So I know very little about Twitter and and I have just, I don't have, I don't have a high opinion of Barry Weiss. I, I've read her book. The book was basically, I would say, it was on the level of a freshman in college, I suppose. You mean uh, how, how to Fight Anti-Semitism, that yeah, book? Yeah. I, mm -hmm. I'm not sure I'd even grace it with the title of a book, but I have uh, standards. Uh, it was a high school, a college, first year college, I would say. Uh, and she was always, uh, she's always, first of all, she was recruited for the New York Times originally. 
because the New York Times has a, a base. Every newspaper has a base, and its base is the Upper East Side. Uh, it's uh, billion, basically billionaire Jews, uh, very successful. Uh, and unfortunately, that age cohort, that age cohort is very conservative in the question of Israel. That particular age cohort, not Jews in general anymore, but that particular, it's for, for you old enough to remember, it's kind of the A.M. Rosenthal uh, mentality uh, and age cohort. And uh, she was basically there to make them feel good. That was her purpose at the New York Times editorial page, every once in a while writing an article about the Holocaust, writing an article about Holocaust deniers, writing an article about anti-Semites. That was basically her thing. And uh, she was, hang on, was not uh, it was not serious uh, commentary, I didn't think. And then she found a new niche. And the new niche was she figured, what the hell? Uh, I'm going to quit the times and make a career out of political correctness. And so she had this very flamboyant exit from the New York Times uh, because of its political correctness, which is probably true. I mean, I'm not denying a lot of what she said was true. The Times became very woke. Um, but you can time it pretty pretty closely. You can time it. Uh, it became uh, probably the worst thing that happened in our country was when Nancy Pelosi discovered the resistance. And you then ceased to make even a pretense, made, you ceased to make even a pretense of objectivity anymore. Uh, not that the Times was objective, but there were certain limits, you know, a certain pretense. And the moment she announced the pre the 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 resistance, uh, New York Times, my opinion, we can disagree. It ceased to become a newspaper. It ceased to be a newspaper, and it became a tabloid. I barely read it nowadays. I mean, if I when I'm reading, you know, New York Times on Ukraine, I can be sure I won't learn anything. I'm absolutely positive I will not learn a single thing. So I just look at the headline and then move on. Um, so as I said. There was probably an element of legitimacy to her claims about the wokeness of the New York Times. But for her, it was just a, a vehicle for, for her career. It was a, a career move for her. Uh, and I don't find her of sufficient depth or breadth or anything for that matter that I should have an opinion on her. I, 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 I know that might sound kind of snobbish uh, and frankly, I think one has a right to have a certain intellectual standard. And uh, one of the things I found so revolting in going through all of this woke literature is that the intellectual standards uh, are non-existent. I mean, there is a field called African-American studies, and it began in a very firm, very firm intellectual foundation. People like W.E.B. Du Bois were extremely impressive. For the book, I end up rereading or reading or rereading a large amount of his uh, formal scholarship, not his journalism, which is, I'm sure, of excellent quality when he was the head of the crisis, the NAACP periodical. Uh, but it's really very impressive. And Du Bois is a scholar. He put in if you read the wonderful two-volume biography of him by David Levering Lewis, spectacular biography, I should say, uh, he put in solid nine-hour days every day working. 
uh, that guy was very serious. And um, every night, I'm sure you'll laugh at these sorts of things. He had his um, he had his eccentricities. Ten o'clock, he had to be in bed. So he would be attending a meeting, you know, some public meeting. Nine o'clock, he just got up and walked out. He had to be in bed. And every evening before he went to bed, he devoted like an hour to reading quality literature because he wanted to maintain the standards of his prose. Very serious scholar. And his um, his uh, works are really very impressive. You know, Black Reconstruction, believe it or not, I'm sure you're familiar with Black Reconstruction. He wrote that when he was already 65. Mm. You know, for all of you people of my age cohort who think your career is over, well, Du Bois wrote probably his greatest work when he was already 65. He was uh, first rate. And then when you read this stuff from Kimberly Crenshaw, and Tanahi, not Tanahi's coast, because he was about history. Um, uh, you read uh, the, the 1619 Project or uh, whatever it's called. Uh, I'm not going to defend that. I, I read enough of her name. What's her name? Nicole. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know uh, it'll come to me. But you're talking about the project in the New York Times uh, uh, about, uh, yeah. I'm not, I'm not an expert in those fields. And as I said, it's a discipline. And as a discipline, it has its experts. And I don't respect all of them. I don't respect all of them. But I'm not going to pass judgment uh, on 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 that. I'd rather leave that to experts. But when you read people like um, when you read people like Ibram Hex Kendi, he devotes a full page to Eldridge Cleaver, who I don't know. It's just a very. It was a page. A, a Black Panther. Yeah, yeah. A, a Black Panther, and uh, he leaves out all the main figures of the civil rights movement, people like, I don't know how much you know about the people like Diane Nash, Bob Moses, you know, the real heroes of the civil rights movement are all omitted. But Pam Greer gets a big uh, place in her book because she had a big Afro. He says literally it was supposed to her Afro. Uh, is this African-American history? By the way, no. the name is Nicole Hannah Jones. Did the 1619 Project at the no, New York no, Times? I, I, for I, for the record, I googled it. Um, I, I I read some of her stuff. She had an article in the New York Times magazine on reparations, basically ripping off uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates. It was mm -hmm. so terrible. It was so so terrible. And what's what's really sad about this whole thing? Not only is the field built on a very solid foundation of People like, not exclusively, people like the boys. But now it's a very reputable field. There are solid scholars in the field, solid scholars. Mm -hmm. Many black, white, and everything in between, women, men, you know, Barbara Fields, brilliant woman, brilliant woman over at Columbia. Why, why are these people being promoted? Why is it Ibram X. Kennedy? All he has is an X in his name and dreads. That's it. Oh, he's a, no, you laugh. He's a fashion <laughs> statement. 
He's not a scholar. There's no expertise there. Uh, the whole, the, these, this whole woke politics. Yeah, but you like, should do, you should do like a stand-up routine. I mean, I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. You, you should. There's a, there are. You're in New York. There are comedy clubs. There, there are. Uh, I think some of these lines would would uh, would be. Uh, I be warmly well, received. I would last about five minutes. Well, there is that problem that you, <laughs> that you would be that you would be ushered off stage. There is that problem. Um, I, I, I'm happy to come on again at your leisure. I have to run to the hospital because I have to have a colonoscopy. And, you know, uh, you're one of the few people I know who would have shared that particular detail. Uh, well, and I admire that. I admire I, that in person. I've not had one since I was, I think, 20 years old. And when I had it, they didn't use anesthetics. Do you know, hmm. 50 years later, I still hear the screams. <laughs> I swear. I'm very nervous about this particular trip. Uh, <laughs> well, listen, folks, Norman will be playing at the uh, Comedy Cellar. Uh, no. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, you should you should come back sometime because we really we need to hear about the rest of that. Uh, the colonoscopy story, for one thing. <laughs> but there are a lot of parts of your, your book. So the book is I'll burn that bridge when I get to it. Heretical thoughts on identity politics, cancel culture and academic freedom and uh the uh i think we covered a lot of the bases you also have a, a long uh section on uh a section on the obama administration which you don't entirely approve of and uh, uh I entirely approve of. not it's not entirely ruthless. yeah longest chapter in the book yeah and uh a consistent theme is in the book as people may have guessed is that you don't pull your punches uh so um thanks listen enjoy enjoy the hospital well i'll just tell you the end of the story with that guy i was screaming screaming you could hear me on jupiter i was screaming so loud and finally the doctor said it ain't so bad and i turned around and said oh you say that to all the guys no i didn't do that <laughs> Okay, well, I, I think I can guarantee you a more pleasant experience this time, given my understanding of, of the evolution of medical technology. But let us know how it goes. Okay, thank you. All so right, thank you, Norman.